Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the Lord reads, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on, on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set... On the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness." If the spirit of him who, reside, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Pastor and author Burke Parsons once wrote, By redeeming us, the Lord secured us in his hand from which we cannot be snatched and from which we ourselves cannot escape, even on days when we feel like running away. So while you have your Bibles out, please just take them and turn with me to uh, 2 Corinthians um, chapter 1. Uh, 2 Corinthians is just past Romans. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to read verses um, 21 and 22. <clears throat> and it reads, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and has anointed us, and who has also put His seal on us, and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. If there is uh, one thing in life that we want, but seems to be elusive to us, it is a guarantee. Because that's what we want in just about everything that we do, right? We want guarantees. We, we want for things to, to be as we expect them to be. We want things to work out the way we want them to. We want to be able to completely depend on certain things in our lives. Like when you go buy a car, you buy the extended warranty. Why? Because you want the car to start. right? You want the car to be dependable. You don't want to be left stranded on the side of the road. right? We don't want for, for us to have to come up with $10,000 for a repair. We want some sort of guarantee. The same thing when you get a job. You want the job to be stable. You want it to continue to be there. We want that paycheck to come regularly as we expect for it to. Right? We want to be able to count on that job providing a living for us. We want, we want, to, we, we want to count on the fact that we're not going to have a pay cut. We want a guarantee for our financial future. And it's the same thing with children. When we have children, all of us have hopes and dreams for them. We, we, we hope that they grow up happy, healthy, well-adjusted, and productive. We hope that they are able to make their own life and have their own families. And when we get older, we, we, we hope to be able to slow down and enjoy life. 
We want to be healthy enough to enjoy life. We want to have enough money to, to live on and do the things that we want to do. We want a sense of security. Right? But we know that with all of those things, there is no guarantee. For all of our preparation, for all of our planning, for all of our industriousness, there is no guarantee. Jobs can be lost like that. And vehicles, I don't care which one you have, I don't care how dependable it may be, vehicles can leave you on the side of the road without notice. And the economy can change, and your entire life savings can vaporize in an instant. In fact, I saw a statistic that said that in 2022, that over $233 billion worth of wealth is gone. Just it disappeared because of the market. With money, there is no guarantee. And it's the same with our kids. In fact, with your kids, it's all bets are off. You do the best that you can do, and you love them, and you invest in them, and you care for them, but there are so many things that influence them that will determine who they are and how their lives will turn out that are beyond your control. When you hold your little child in your hands and you love them and wish the best for them and try to imagine their future, there's no way that you can guarantee or know exactly how they're going to turn out. There's just no knowing. None of these things are guaranteed. And if there's anything the last few years have taught us, that even the things that we thought were ironclad are not even guaranteed. We once believed that our right to gather and worship God in a church was guaranteed by the First Amendment of our Constitution, but even our own state government threatened to shut down physically, shut down churches, and have pastors arrested. Right? That was a real thing. We once thought that we were free to make choices about our own health care, only to have the government and many employ employers try to force people to put in their bodies you know, substances that, that weren't really even proven yet that we were just basically being commanded to do it. No questions, no objections, right? And we thought that we had the right to free speech, that we thought that, that was guaranteed to it as well, but recently we find out that there are many people at work right now, including major corporations and even social media outlets, and it, even our government, it seems, is actively working to suppress the freedom of expression of certain people and many groups of people. In fact, um, there's a growing movement amongst college campuses that, that says that they want to make certain kinds of speech illegal. More and more people in our country, you know, want for there to be jail time for people who say certain things. Our inalienable rights don't seem to be guaranteed anymore. Right? Now, it doesn't matter to me who it is that you vote for, what political party you identify with, or what issues you find are important to you. Our church family is made up of and has been of people with differing political perspectives who have different ideas about things. But we all can agree on our love for, our, for Christ. And we at one time would have all unanimously thought that there are just certain rights that we have that were guaranteed. But the fact is, they don't seem to be that way anymore. But, but that's what we want. We want some sort of guarantee in life, right? If we commit ourselves to do something and we put our whole heart into a project, we want it desperately to work out. If you take all of your money and invest all of your life savings in a business, you would like to have some kind of guarantee that you'll be successful. If we commit ourselves to marriage to someone, we would hope that those vows will serve as a guarantee that we're not going to grow old alone. We're all, we want guarantees, but we seem that there are very few in this life to be found. But yet, here in 2 Corinthians is exactly what we're looking for, a guarantee. Paul says, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. God has given us the Holy Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. A guarantee for what? A guarantee for your salvation. A guarantee that God will fulfill the promise that He has made to save you. Now, why do I begin this section on Romans chapter 8 talking about the guarantee we find in 2 Corinthians? 
Because all of Romans chapter 8 is about what we are so desperately in this life searching for. A guarantee. A guarantee that we will not be forgotten. A guarantee that you will not be left behind and you will not be forsaken. A guarantee that we will not be put to shame. A guarantee that God will finish what He started in you. A guarantee that He will keep His promise to redeem us. That's what Romans chapter 8 is all about. As H.B. Charles said, as we talked about last time, if the Bible is a gold ring, then Romans 8 is the centrally mounted diamond in that ring because it brings to us the pinnacle of our hope that for those who come to faith in Christ, salvation is guaranteed. This is the overarching point of Romans 8 that we began to talk about a few weeks ago. And those who come to faith in Christ are secure in their salvation. Because again, notice Romans chapter 8 begins with a promise that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And it ends with the promise that there is no separation from God's love for those who are in Christ. And in between there, there's the promise that God works all things out for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. The theme of Romans 8 is about the guarantee that those who trust in Christ can... Those who trust in Christ are secure in that promise. That's why Paul, what, what Paul is essentially saying to you and me is, believer, you are completely safe in the hands of God. You are secure in God's hand. The truth that Paul is emphasizing right here is the truth that Jesus himself declared in John chapter 10. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Romans chapter 8 is about the glorious doctrine of the security of the believer, the security the gospel gives to those who believe in Christ. And today, Paul is going to unpack for us the basis of this security and how that security is applied to us. How is it that we are given this security? So turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And let me just be up front with you. <laughs> this is a big section of text that we're going to tackle at once, especially for me, as you know. I usually go in smaller bites. So we're probably going to move a little bit quick here. And this just assumes that since we've been in Romans for such a long time, that you're going to have a handle on a number of the things that we've talked about and a number of the themes in this letter. And uh, with that, if you... Um, haven't you know, been listening the whole time or you've missed some of the parts, I would just encourage you to go back as you have time to listen to the, uh, the parts. You can find them all on YouTube or SoundCloud or even Spotify. Um, I think it would be helpful to you to really um, to have those under your belt. But Romans chapter 8, in verse 1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is the glorious truth that we spent all a whole sermon talking about. That for the believer that, who has been justified by faith in Christ, the specter of condemnation, the threat of judgment and punishment has forever and ever and ever been done away with. It's gone. If you're in Christ, all the things, that, of all the things you have to worry about in this life, there is one thing you don't have to ever, ever, ever worry about. You never have to fear the day when you finally stand and face God. Whether it's 50 years from now when you slowly die in your sleep, or if it's tomorrow when you, if you have a car wreck, you don't have to live in fear that when you finally stand and face God, that something bad's going to happen to you. Because you have already been, if you're in Christ, declared righteous. If you're in Christ, eternal life is already your reward. If you're in Christ, condemnation is already completely and forever out of the question. And you have the assurance of the gospel the moment you come to faith in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus ever. What a glorious truth to live by. And then after making this glorious statement, Paul goes on to say, 
why there is no condemnation. He says, for. And, and the word for here is a conjunction that can be substituted for the word because. For, because the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, there's a mouthful there, and it's pretty easy to get tangled up in the language, but let's just think about what Paul's getting at here. The word that he uses for law certainly can and oftentimes does mean the moral law or the, the law of Moses or the law of God. It's the Greek word nomos. But from the context, that's not what Paul is referring to in this section of the text, right? When he says, the law of sin and death. He's not talking about the moral law because Paul has already established that the moral law, the law of God is good. It is holy and it is good. So Paul actually uses the word law here, not in the specific sense to refer to the moral law, but in a more general sense. Because the word nomos can also mean principle or, or a um, regulating principle. Kind of like the law of gravity, right? We know that it's not a law like written in stone by the laws of men. It's a principle, right? Or the law of attraction. We know that's a general principle, you know, in the world. That's how Paul is using the word here. It's a general principle. In other words, what Paul is saying is the law or the general principle of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law or the regulating principle of sin and death. Because what we understand is before Christ, we were in bondage to the principle of sin and death. It was inescapable for us, right? We were enslaved, as we were told, by this principle or law. That's what, what Paul made clear in the first seven chapters of his letter. That mankind was born in bondage to sin and death and couldn't, on his own, do anything about it. He was hopelessly subject to that law. He was under the tyrannical law of sin and death. That is the fate of all of humanity without Christ. But now Paul says the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from that law of sin and death. In other words, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because they are set free from the law of sin and death by the law of the spirit of life. Right. Well, what is the the law of the spirit of life then? What is this law that sets us free? What is this regulative principle called the spirit, the law of the spirit of life? Well, it's actually quite simple. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. The law of the spirit of life is just another way of saying the gospel. The gospel is what sets us free from the law of sin and death. It's the truth about who God is in His righteousness and His character revealed by the moral law and the truth about who we are as we stand in light of that. And it's the truth about the fact that we all have fallen short and are under God's wrath and condemnation because we have fallen short. That's the bad news, right? But then the good news is that Christ came and lived the life that we couldn't live and then made atonement for our sins and was raised as proof that our redemption had been accomplished. That's the gospel. And, and how are we called then to obey this law? How are we called to respond to this law of the, the spirit of life? Repent and believe, right? We repent and believe and we are then set free. That is the law of the spirit of life. It's the gospel. And so in other words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because the gospel has set you free in Christ from enslavement, from sin and death. That's the essence of what Paul is saying. And then notice he says, for or because God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And the first thing I want you to notice is that it says that God has done what the law couldn't do. And this is a very easy to overlook point here, but it's something that we must come back to again and again and again and again, right? It is about what God has done. Your salvation, 
Your redemption, your justification is about what God has done for you. It's not about what you have done. It's about what he's done. Because he is the author and perfecter of your faith. He is the one who initiates salvation in you. He is the one who decrees it. He is the one who pays for it. He is the one who applies it to you. Salvation is 100% the work of God alone. It is all Him. You were saved by grace through faith, and even your faith is a gift from God so that no one may boast. This is the truth that we must come to and fully embrace and rest in, brothers and sisters. This is the truth that we must hold on to. Otherwise, the rest of Romans isn't going to make complete sense to us. There are going to be things we're going to get tripped up over. There are going to be issues we're just going to struggle with. If we don't understand and believe that salvation is the work that God has done, we will be led into a myriad of theological errors that will cause the rest of our Christian life and our Christian walk to be skewed and distorted. Not to say that we can't be Christians and grow in maturity, but there will be just a lot of things that will just trip us up. It will cause us to hold flawed views of God and and it will weaken our gospel witness. Even more than that, if we don't understand this truth that salvation is of the Lord and not us, we will be prone to fall into legalism as we try to earn God's love. Or worse, we will fall into antinomianism as we run from the law, convicted of the fact that we we are just going to continually sin. And then there's the tendency for us to then try to take responsibility for things that we don't have business taking responsibility for. We will try to take responsibility for our own salvation in order to try to earn it. And we also will try to take responsibility for the salvation of other people. Because if we don't, then they might not ever get saved is what we'll tell ourselves we'll begin to live with a burden that we can never live with. That somehow, way, we need to do more and more and work harder to convince people. We should always share the, the hope of Christ continually, but understanding that even that's still the work of the Lord and not us. Salvation from the beginning to end is the work of God. And even the part that we play exercising faith and even the part we play evangelizing the lost is still by God's grace and still the work of His sovereign hand. By the way, the truth that salvation is what God does is the reason why there's a guarantee. You realize that, right? Because salvation is of the Lord and not us. That's the reason why there's a guarantee. Because if it depends on us in any way, then there is no guarantee except the guarantee that there's loss. As Vodi Bauckham likes to quote John MacArthur who says, If you could lose your salvation, you would. If your salvation depends on you in the slightest, tiniest way, you are lost. God can can give us this guarantee because He is the one who's in control and salvation is what He does. Second, notice that what God does is what the law cannot do. What is it the law cannot do? The law cannot work righteousness into the hearts of men. The law cannot make us righteous. Why? It's because of the flesh. Right? That's what Paul says. God has done what the, the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do. The law, which reveals the character of God, the law reveals God's requirement for righteousness, The law acts as a mirror to show us how we measure up or fall short. The law cannot undo what is wrong with us. Well, what is this wrong with us? It's our flesh. That's what Paul says. Now, Paul is going to use the word flesh multiple times in these next few verses. And the word is from the Greek word sarx, and it can literally mean, you know, physical flesh but it also can be used as a metaphor for the human nature. And that's how Paul uses it here. It's about your humanness. What makes you human? Your human nature. What Paul is saying is our human nature renders the law impotent to justify us before God. Well, why is our human nature rendering the law so impotent? Well, because our human nature 
what makes us who we are, is the problem from the beginning. It's, it's fallen and corrupted by sin. That's why. As Paul explained over and over again, we are by nature sinners because we inherited that nature from Adam. We were born in Adam, and as such, we have the very same corrupt nature. This is the problem from the very beginning. Every human being suffers the same problem. The very human nature is thoroughly corrupted by sin. Not to say that we can't do good things. It's just as we talked about, our bodies are affected by sin. Our hearts, our minds, our emotions, our ability to reason, even if we're smart and intelligent and seek for wisdom, it's still those things are corrupted and influenced by sin. Our ability to make decisions is corrupted by sin. You know how I know for sure? How many of you made decisions that you regretted? Come on, right? If it wasn't corrupted by sin, you'd make really, really good decisions. There are even decisions you've made that kind of in your mind you knew that you shouldn't be making those decisions, but you still talked yourself in that decision, knowing that you're going to regret that decision, but you still made that decision anyway. That's all the, the proof that you need. Every part of our human faculties is influenced by sin. That's the doctrine of total depravity. Not that we are as bad as we possibly can be. It's just that every part of what makes us human is impacted and influenced by sin. And it's because of that, then, the law can't save us. Because, first of all, we don't have the ability to keep the law. Even if we tried really hard. What's the law? Well, there's a lot of different ways to say it, but we can summarize it with two commands that Jesus said, which is to love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength. And then the second is like it, which is to love your neighbors yourself. Now, how many of you can do that every day? Can't do it, right? It's impossible. You cannot keep the law, right? Secondly, without Christ, we don't want to do it. Our human nature is bent on not doing it. In fact, Paul tells us that in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? The devil himself. The spirits that now it's, that it is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, our human nature carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In fact, that's the point that Paul's making in verses 5 through 8 here. For those who live according to the flesh, who live according to their human nature, their minds are set on things of the flesh. And he also says the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile. Those people who live in their human nature are hostile to God for they cannot submit to God's law, right? Which is, which is why the law is weak, right? And then he says, indeed, not only they, 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 they don't submit to God's law, but they cannot. And he says, those who are in the flesh can't please God. This is why the law can't save you. And the law, all it can do is show you how you fall short and give you a pattern to give you a pattern to change your outward behavior. You can try really hard and begin to try to, you know, change your outward behavior. And if you have kids, you know what that looks like, right? You have kids, right? You know there's a difference between them doing what you said because you're making them and doing what you said because their hearts are different. The law can change your outward behavior, but it can't change your nature. The law cannot change your flesh. The law cannot change your heart. It can only reveal the corruption of your flesh. You see, what we need to be right with God is not simply behavior modification. We need heart transformation. And the law cannot do that. Only God himself can do that. And so Paul says, for or because God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And then he, then he says, that he did this by sending his own son. God did for us what the law couldn't do by sending his own son. That should, be, that should sound familiar to you, right? This is the gospel truth that we hear and that we've read about or we've memorized from John chapter 3. 
Verse 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. In fact, that's what it took to redeem us. God the Father sent God the Son into the world to do for us what we could not do on our own. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. Paul's talking about Jesus came into the world to die. Right? He's talking about the incarnation, and he's talking about the cross. We just celebrated Christmas last week, which is a celebration of the incarnation. God became flesh. He took on a human nature, and he came to be one of us. He came to be with us, but when he came, he came like us, but he wasn't completely, totally like us. Paul says he, was, he sent him in, in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he didn't send him in sinful flesh. You see, Jesus has a full human nature, but his nature isn't like ours. We were born in Adam, and we were born corrupt and sinful in nature, but Jesus was born differently. Remember, that's part of the miracle of Christmas. He was born of a, a virgin, supernatural. Not a natural human generation, right? Not as a child of Adam with a, with a broken human nature. He was born supernaturally with an uncorrupted nature, a sinless nature. By the way, this is why the virgin birth is essential to our faith. When you talk about the things that are essential to the Christian faith, the virgin birth is part of that. Why? Because without Jesus... If, because without it, without that virgin birth, Jesus is just another sinful man with the same sinful flesh. And if he has sinful flesh by default, then he is unrighteous before God, which means that he would not be acceptable to God, which means he couldn't save us. That's why we hold on to the doctrine of the virgin birth. And so Jesus, though born with a human nature, was born different and in our likeness, but different. And so God sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. This is simply a reference to the cross. Christ came into the world with that perfect human nature. And He kept that perfect human nature by fulfilling the covenant of works that Adam failed to fulfill. And then Christ perfectly kept all of the moral commandments of God's law that every human being has failed to keep. In so doing, he earned by his own effort a righteous standing, a righteous standing before God, and he willingly then went to the cross where he and his body endured the wrath of God and in his flesh and by his blood made atonement for our sins. That's what Paul's referring to here. And this was, Paul says, in order that the righteousness or the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The righteous requirements of the law have been fulfilled for us. And this reminds us what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, which ought to remind you also of a famous song, Jesus Messiah. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This right here is what we call the great exchange. Our sins have been imputed to Christ and credited to Him, and He atoned for those sins on the cross. He paid for our sins if they were, as if they were His own. But that's only part of the equation, because His righteousness, His righteous standing before God, right? once we put our faith in Jesus, that righteousness is imputed or credited to us as if it's our own. That's why we don't have fear of condemnation. It's not because we do good stuff, right? That's why we, there, there is no condemnation for us because in the eyes of God, because of what Christ has done for us, we are perfectly righteous. We are spotless. Not because of us, but because of what Jesus has done for us. The, re the righteous requirements of the law have been fulfilled for us. But notice what Paul actually says here. It's easy to miss. It was 
in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It is true that the, right, that the requirements of the law have been fulfilled for us, but Paul is talking about something even more fundamental than that. He says the requirements have been fulfilled in us. Well, how is that even possible? Well, notice what Paul says. He says that we who walk or live not according to the flesh or our human nature, but according to the Spirit, our new nature. You see, not only have our sins been forgiven, and not only have we been, re- been given a righteous standing before God, our nature, our hearts have been radically changed by God. This is why Paul says, the old is gone and the new has come. That's why we're told that we're a new creation. You see, one of, the, one of the problems with this text is so many people look at this text, and, and here's how preachers want to preach this, all legalistic-like. They'll say, now that you're a Christian, you need to not live and walk according to your flesh, but you need to live according to the Spirit. That's your problem, is you're not living according to the Spirit. How many of you have heard it that way before? I have, Right? Christian, you need to start walking by the Spirit. But the, but, but, but the truth is, right, is this text is not, an, not, a, not a command to do anything. This is not an admonition for you to do anything. This is a statement of fact. We walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, not because we try really, really hard to keep the law. We walk and live according to the Spirit because that's who we are in Christ. It's our new nature. We have a new nature given to us by God. Notice what Paul says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. In other words, because you have a new nature, you're going to think differently than you did before. Your mind doesn't work the way that it used to work. If you're a Christian, tell me I'm wrong. When you come to faith in Christ, suddenly your thinking was different than before. Not to say that you don't have bad or sinful thoughts today. It still happens. But there's something in you that desires to please God that wasn't there before. Your affections have changed. Your desires have changed. The way that you see the world around you has changed. Your mind has been illuminated by the Spirit. The God that you once hated, you now love. And the the sins that you once loved, you now begin to hate. And your mind is set on the things of Spirit because you live in the Spirit, not because you're trying really hard to, but because you've been changed. It's just who you are. You're a new creature. Paul goes on to say, for for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Those who are still in the flesh and the human nature have no choice but to live in the thoughts in their minds that, that are corrupted by the nature, and it leads to death. That's where it ends up. But those who are in Christ, who have a new nature, live by the spirit, and their thoughts are eliminated by the spirit, and, 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 they, and the truth is that it results in life and peace. By the way, what is what are the blessings of the gospel? Eternal life and peace with God. You see, what Paul is saying is those who are in Christ are no longer like they used to be, those who are in the flesh. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That is who we were before. Enslaved to sin and death with no hope of our own. But then notice it says, you, however, are not in the flesh. You're not in that human nature anymore, but in the spirit. You've been radically transformed. You have a new nature. And Paul tells us how it happened. Right? He says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, 
Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. This is the radical transformation that God works in all of our hearts. You are no longer living in your old human nature because now you live in your new spiritual nature. And the reason why you live in that new spiritual nature, the reason why you can live this new life is because the Holy Spirit has come and changed your heart from a heart of stone and turned it into a heart of flesh. And more importantly, He has taken up residence inside you. This is the mystery of the Christian faith. This is what gives us hope that God isn't some external thing out there that's just looking over our heads. He comes and He takes up residence inside of us. This is what it means to be born again. This is the radical transformation that Jesus was talking about in John chapter 3. You ever wonder why Nicodemus reacts the way that he does? I mean, listen, he says, truly, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of, of God. And Nicodemus is like, wow, that's crazy. How can a man be born when he's old? Right? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? He's like, that's a radical transformation. How is that even possible? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, natural birth, and of spirit, supernatural rebirth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And to emphasize that, he says, that which is born of flesh is what? Flesh. That which comes from human nature is human nature, but that which is born of spirit is what? Spirit. Now, in that context of Jesus' own words, hear Paul's words again. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. He's not a believer, right? But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life, the spirit is life because of righteousness. What Paul is saying is, you've been born again. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the gospel has sent them free from the law of sin and death because God did what, we, what the law couldn't do. He sent His Son to fulfill all righteousness and atone for our sins so that we don't live according to our own nature anymore so that we could be born again. And being born again, the Spirit of God now dwells in them. And this has two radical things for us to hold on to. First of all, it means that rebirth, regeneration, is not something that we do. Right? It's supernatural. It's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. He makes us born again. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. We don't regenerate ourselves any more than we physically generate ourselves in the first place. Rebirth is a radical transformation, just like your regular birth was. Just ask your mom. Things change really fast. Secondly, the moment that you were born again, the moment you were justified, you were filled and indwelt with the Holy Spirit, you have the fullness of the Holy Spirit in you when you come to faith in Christ. Being filled with the Spirit is not a second act of salvation. The moment you were born again, the Spirit of God lives inside of you. That's why, we, Paul, that's why Paul says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And because you were filled with the Spirit, you then by nature live and walk in the Spirit. Not because you're trying to, but because you're simply, that's who you are. Now understand, this doesn't mean that you won't ever sin. This doesn't mean that you will not do stupid things. This doesn't mean that you will not wrestle with God. This doesn't mean that you will not be rebellious at times. I mean, we talked about that in Romans chapter 7, right? There's a sermon worth listening to by itself, the fact that we still struggle, but Christ is our salvation. What it means is the Spirit of God lives inside of you, leading you, guiding you, convicting you, and slowly over time sanctifying you and changing you and reshaping you from the inside out, changing you more and more into the image of Christ. That's what it means. It's the ongoing work of sanctification. 
Remember, justification is the past tense work of salvation where you have been permanently saved from the penalty of sin. Glorification is what we look forward to, where we will be in the future saved from the presence of sin. Sanctification is the present tense work of salvation right now, where we're being progressively saved from the power of sin. And when you were born again, the Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence inside of you, sanctifying you. And the promise is then, in verse 11, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. That, my brothers and sisters, is the guarantee. Your salvation if you're in Christ, has been guaranteed. And that guarantee is the one that Paul talks about in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. In fact, let me just revisit that really quick because I think this will drive this home. It says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. It's God who works salvation and has anointed us and who has also put His seal, His seal of ownership on us and has given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now you need to understand the word guarantee here that Paul uses means specifically a pledge. In other words, it's like an earnest deposit. I once heard Vody Bauckham talk about this, and I really love the way he explained this. I'll do my best to do justice to this, but... We all understand what an earnest deposit is, right? When you go to buy a house and sign the contract, right? You send the contract, you're promising that I'm going to buy this house and we're going to close in whatever time, right? I'm, I'm promising. And, and to, to show that I'm serious about this promise, I'm putting up an earnest deposit. I'm writing you a check that says that, that if I don't do what I promise to do according to this contract, then you get to keep the earnest deposit. If I don't come and fulfill the terms of this contract, then I'm forfeiting and sacrificing right, this, this earnest deposit. What Paul is saying is that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee. In other words, God the Father gave us the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the earnest deposit guaranteeing that God Himself will keep His promise to save us. In other words... God the Father gave you and I, God the Holy Spirit, the, as, an, as an earnest deposit, promising to save us. And, and here's, the, here's the crux of the matter. If God should fail to save us, then He forfeits the third person of the Trinity. That's how serious God is about saving us. In other words, God would sooner cease to be God then those who are in Christ lose their guarantee of salvation. That's the language that Paul uses. That's the hope that you and I have as we start 2023 of all the things that we have in this world to worry about. Of all the things that are going to come our way, whether political or economic or community, crime, you know, you know, uh, houses falling apart, you know, cars breaking down, losing loved ones, of all the things that are going to go wrong this year, you have the ironclad guarantee that if you're in Christ, that He will see you safely home. No matter what you go through, no matter what you see, no matter what the world does around you, that when you take your turn, that we all will take, when you step across that line into eternity and you stand face to face with God, you're going to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That you will not have to stand before God in fear, not because you're good, but because of what Christ has done for you that you have received simply by faith. Can I get an amen to that? All right. That's the hope that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8. And with that then, as we start the new year, let's just think about how to apply this. First of all, if you are not in Christ, if you have not come to faith in Christ, today's the day of salvation. Repent and believe the gospel. This gospel is for you. That you are a broken sinner, that you cannot save yourself, but Christ has done it all for you, and you don't have to do anything. 
except to repent and believe, to trust and to grab hold of Christ by faith. And the promise is, if you will call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved, guaranteed. If you will put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ, you are part of the family, you are forever redeemed, and you have this guarantee to carry you safely home. And you can rejoice in that. Secondly, then if you're in Christ, we need to do just that. This needs to be the basis of our rejoicing, right? We're going to have hard times, right? I mean, 2022 had its ups, and 2022 had its really difficult moments. We are going to face difficult times. Our hearts are going to be broken. And it is just the way things are. It's foolish of us to think that we're going to find some way we're going to be permanently happy forever. It's just not going to happen this side of heaven. So how are you going to get through those times? By building your life on the foundation of this truth right here of who you are in Christ. That no matter what happens, you can still rejoice and still glorify God and still take God at His word that He's going to tell us about in Romans chapter 8 that all things, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Not all things are good, but they all work for good producing in us something that is glorious, right? And then finally, this is the message we have to take out of the world, brothers and sisters. I mean, I affirm the sovereignty of God, that, that, that salvation is, is of the Lord. But guess what? God is the one who ordains the ends and the means. And the means are, go out in the world and share the hope of Christ. We're all called to be a part of this mission. We're all called to go out into the world and share the hope of Christ with our neighbors and our friends so they can see Jesus, right? And then bring them here and get them plugged in and, make, and disciple them up so they can go out and do the same thing. In fact, what do we say our mission is? What do we do? Sow the seed, love the people, pray for God to change their hearts, and never give up. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.